According to E. Clampus Vitus legend, St. Vitus devoted 37 years of study and unbiblical contemplation to seek out the fundamental truths which are bound up in the mystic title of the order. He began writing a Kabbalistic treatise upon the subject in 83 volumes, but so far as anyone has been able to discover, he got no further than the first three words. Credo, Kia, Absurdum, which means I believe because it is absurd. In this episode of Ricky's Historical Tidbits, I will be attempting to share with you an expose complete with the ancient history through the three main ages of Clamperdom. This is Ricky's Historical Tidbits Podcast, and this is Ricky Mortensen. Continuing on from the Eclampus Vitus legend, after writing those three words, Credo, Kia, Absurdum, St. Vitus was captured and thrown to the lions by Emperor Diocletian. The order continued on, though, through the Vituscan brothers. Back then, the phrase was Eke Lampas Vitae, which meant Behold the Light of Life. Now, in the mid-20th century, there was a discovery at the Vatican Library, a letter written by Heliodorcus, who was a Vituscan monk. The letter tells the story of when he and nine other other, uh, Vituscan missionaries went to the far east land of ancient China. Only two of the nine, and Heliodorcus, survived, the names of which were Stomachus and Bellicosus. Once in China, they went to Emperor He Sing Li, and there the Vituscans converted the emperor, who is the one who changed the name, to E. Clampus Vitus. Then, in 1890, according to the E. Clampus Vitus legend, a man named Dr. Shaw from New York went to China and discovered a manuscript that dated back to the year 435 AD. The writings told the story of a Chinese navigator who accidentally discovered America. While out at sea, the wind blew him further into the abyss. Somehow a bug of some sort climbed into his compass and died. In doing this, the compass's needle got messed up. He, Lee, the navigator, sailed east forever until he landed at Monterey. Seeing as it was a new land, he claimed it for China, naming it Gumshan, and began teaching the ancient order of E. Clampus Vitus to the natives. Now, the legend continues even further. Word got back to China that Gumshan was claimed for China, and it was a land where E. Clampus Vitus was widely accepted, so another man set sail for the land, bringing 300 slave girls with him to populate the land, for the order. On the journey, one particular slave girl led a revolt and threw all the men overboard, and the sharks ate them up. That slave girl was named Hop Me, and she claimed herself empress of the new land of Gumshan. It is said she is the person behind the legend of Calafia. Now, the last part of the ancient history is this. The first clamper in recorded history showed up at the end of the Mesozoic era and quickly made himself a red shirt, and then made the first hugag, which is a horn, from the horn of a triceratops. Okay, 
Eclabus Vitus, if you couldn't tell by now, is a total joke on secret societies like the Freemasons and the Oddfellows. It was created by a guy named Ephraim B. in Virginia before it became West Virginia. Ephraim uh, was born in the first few years of 1800. No one really knows exactly. Uh, he was mainly a tavern and hotel owner and a blacksmith. He was not a high society man who would be admitted into the high class fraternities like the Freemasons. He also had a speech impediment with didn't help him either. So he lived a life of practical jokes. One day, a man named Caleb Cushing came to Virginia from China. He came up with a great idea to make fun of the stuffed shirt guys and created a secret society called E. Clampus Vitus. The idea behind it would be that it is a special ancient order with many secrets of truth and knowledge that came from China. The scion of the House of Confucius was charged to instruct the new grand giant Scutus in the rules, secrets, and sacred mysteries, and to communicate the grip, signs, and password of E. Clampus Vitus. He went on to put in an announcement in the newspaper, Mr. B was first commissioned Grand Giant Scudus of the United States by Grand Hotot of China. This got Ephraim B lots of attention. He would then tell these people that they must be initiated to join the Brotherhood and receive the ancient secrets of the universe. So, initiations began. I'm not sure exactly what they were in the beginning, but for the most part, it was all kinds of things making fun of the ones that the Masons did. A poor blind candidate, as they call potential members, would be blindfolded and brought into a room. They would sit at what is called the expungence chair and pass through the cave of silence. After that, they would ride the rocky road and experience the elevation of man, take some oaths, and then endure the obliterating obfuscation. I, I can never say that word right. Obfuscation. Receive the staff of relief, and then his initiation fee would be converted to liquid assets and consumed by the other members. I couldn't figure out what all of those were, but the cave of silence was when a candidate would sit in a chair with a curved sheet of metal around him, and the members would then bang hammers all around him to make it really noisy. The uh, rocky road is when a candidate would sit in a wheelbarrow with a wet sponge in it, and then he would be pushed over a ladder on the floor. The elevation of man would be when the candidate would be put in a coffin, asked to reveal some intimate information about themselves, and then would be hoisted up into the air and dropped into a vat of water. Then, of course, at the end, a new member would buy everyone a round or more at the bar. So Ephraim would go around town trying to convince strangers that the only way to do business in this town was to join a society. And, of course, he recommended E. Clumpus Vitus. So Ephraim and his buddies drank free most of the time. Now, Ephraim has another part to history I think would be a shame to not mention. Now, though he had two slaves, he helped in the Underground Railroad. See, nearby his tavern was a place called Jaco Cave. There, a man named Luke Jaco would hide slaves on their way north. When Mr. Jaco needed to move the slaves, Ephraim B. would then stage a brawl over at his tavern to be a distraction while the slaves got away. Years later, B. got into politics and voted for emancipation. Now, let's move to phase two of Clamperdom. 
A man named Joe Zumwalt was moving west to California and came across a copy of the Eclampus Vitus rituals in Missouri. He brought it with him to Hangtown, modern-day Placerville, tried to start up a chapter there, but it didn't really work out, so he moved down to Macalumne Hill, which is in Calaveras County, where Jackson and Ione is. That chapter did really well, and soon E. Clampus Vitus was all over the place, pretty much in every mining camp. It was here in California, the second age of clamperdom, where the signature red shirts came about, the random buttons, pins, and ribbons as well, continuing on to thumb their noses at the high society folk in the Freemasons and other groups, the miners would present each other with cut-up tin can lids as medals, like the other groups who had the fancy medals that they wore. The purpose was basically the same. They drank a lot. They made fun of the snobby upper-class people who saw them as peasants. But they also were a very connected brotherhood. If a miner got sick or hurt, he was taken care of. If he died, his wife and kids would be taken care of as well. Fun fact, the California legislature at one time had to close because so many congressmen were clampers and they had some kind of event and ditched the Capitol when the Hugh Gag braid. By World War I, the E. Clampus Vitus Fund died out, which brings us to the third, final, and most modern age of clamperdom. In 1931, three men met up at a hotel in San Francisco. They all loved history, and recently the head of the group, Carl Wheat, had been learning a lot about an old funny group called E. Clampus Vitus, something he called the, quote, comic strip on the page of California history. And he wanted to revive it. Oddly enough, Carl Wheat himself was a member of the Bohemian Grove and also was a Freemason. He and his group created the Capitulus Redivivus, Yerba Buena number one, and came up with the backstory I started this podcast with. Word got out, and out of nowhere, a man called in saying he was a member back in the 1880s. Carl and his group went down to meet the last living Grand Humbug, that's the title of a leader of a chapter, Adam Lee Moore. He told them all about his time and the order and told them all the initiations they used to do. Mr. Wheat then went on to crown him Clampatriarch. A few years later, they found out that a small group over in Marysville had never disbanded and were still together. And then in 1915, that small group changed Eclampus Vitus to slightly a more service club, like dedicating things, like bridges. The two groups joined together and wrote a clamp constitution in 1940. The new E. Clampus Vitus operated as a drinking historical society, though some say a historical drinking society, but began placing plaques all around California, highlighting the lesser-known local history that most academic historical societies wouldn't really care to talk about. But they still had their fun with practical jokes. In 1936, a discovery of a brass plate was made. The plate had etched into it that was from Sir Francis Drake. It claimed that the Native Americans had given the land to England way back when. So E. Clampus Vitus, who discovered the plate, brought it to the attention to the Miwok tribal chief, who then made a proclamation of revocation and what the plate claimed. 
copy of this revocation got to the desk of the President of the United States, and he sent back a letter to Eclampus Vitus saying, Thanks to ECV, you and your children are still under this flag, this glorious star-spangled banner. Signed, F.D.R. Now for a bunch of last-second fun facts. Ronald Reagan is said to have been a clamper. When governor of California, he declared July 6th, 1968 as E. Clampus Vitus Day. Some other famous clampers were John Studebaker, Philip R. Moore, Gene Autry, Samuel Clemens, and President Grant, though clamper legend claims many others. Today, clampers wear the traditional red shirt. Some wear top hats and black vests with all kinds of buttons, ribbons, and patches on them. They make plaques and place them in places where something historical happened that typically wouldn't be in a history book like Moose Milk, for example. Look it up. Now, to end this podcast, I gotta tell you, this was a lot of fun to research, and I hope you enjoyed this video. I want to thank two clampers who sent in some info, Puke and Cold Cuts. Puke sent in some pictures. Uh, you might recognize this guy right here in the middle from Pawn Stars. He is known as the Beard of Knowledge. And last thing, in my research, I found that there is a clamper museum in La Porte, California called the Frank C. Riley Museum. You might want to check that out. And also the Old Timers Museum in Murphy's. That's it for this episode. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And if you are a clamper, let me know in the comments if this was satisfactory. You've been listening to Ricky's Historical Tidbits Podcast. When you go to school and study history... They give you dates, they give you some names, and that's about it. But there's a lot more to California history, and that's where this show comes in. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from the show, and we hope you were entertained. And we'll be back soon, but in the meantime, hook up with us on Twitter and Instagram at busy underscore Ricky. Find us on Facebook at Ricky's Historical Tidbits. Till next time, this is Ricky's Historical Tidbits Podcast, signing off.